Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We are in week, who knows what, of the coronavirus pandemic, the quarantine, I hope. As always, I'd like to open the show by just wishing everybody out there well. I know it's a very scary time for many. It's a, it's a boring time for some, and others are uh, would love to be bored if they find themselves on the front lines as workers in uh, any capacity, whether that be say, grocery store clerks, whether that be certainly healthcare, per- health, healthcare personnel, the trucking industry, the uh, delivery industry, the gig, gig economy. Um, it's a scary and interesting time, but today's episode is going to uh, touch on all of that in a, in a very direct way, perhaps the most direct, the most directly I've uh, discussed these topics since the beginning of the crisis. And that is thanks to our guest today. He has written an excellent piece. It's, it's a couple of weeks old now, but we're going to update that. That piece appeared in The Bullet, which is a project, an online project of the Socialist Project in uh, in Canada. You see how I did that, Sam? Uh, down here in, in the States, it's project. Up there in Canada, it's project. You got to be bilingual. Sam Gannon, thanks for joining us on DPS. Great, great to be talking with you. So this piece appeared on uh, the Socialist Projects online. I guess it's like a, a newsletter. It's called The Bullet. Everybody should subscribe to it, by the way. This piece is going to be linked to in the show notes and uh, click on that link, check out the article, give it a good read. And then when you're done, if you liked it and you will, go ahead and give The Bullet a a subscribe. They send out good stuff to your inboxes uh, on a weekly basis. Always good stuff. And that piece was called The Coronavirus and the Crisis This Time. You were trying to make sense of this crisis by contextualizing it with past crises. Uh, you are well suited to do that. You are, uh, of course, the uh, co-author of The Making of Global Capitalism with Leo Panich. You've been on the show previously, so we'll keep the, the wind up and the bio to a minimum. But you're also uh, the uh, co-author of an updated version of The Socialist Challenge Today, series of Sanders and Corbin. That's out with uh, Leo Panich with an assist by Steve Marr. All past guests of DPS, of DPS people should be uh, familiar with them. But um, let's contextualize this crisis in this article by talking about the updated version of the Socialist Challenge today. A lot has certainly unfolded since the first edition of that book. Talk to us about the conjunction that we find ourselves in today, before the coronavirus hit. We're seeing the collapse of the Corbinite movement in labor in some senses. Of course, some revelations have come out since then that uh, give clues as to why that might have been the case. Uh, we're seeing, uh, the, we've seen the exit of Bernie Sanders from the Democratic Party primary race. This democratic socialist, social democratic wave looks to have ebbed and, and it's now flowing, as they say. Contextualize the moment that you found yourselves in when, when you, when you st- sat down to write this updated version of the Socialist Challenge today. Actually, when, uh, as we sent it to print, Leo suddenly thought that we should have actually called it uh, Beyond Syriza, Corbin and Sanders because of the changes that happened between the time we wrote it and what's going on now. I, I think what we were trying to come to grips with was that there was a very significant change in politics and movements on the left in that people started to move from protest to politics. You saw that with uh, Syriza, you saw that with Podemos, you saw that to some extent in the things you mentioned earlier about uh, Occupy, etc. Uh, and you saw it with Corbynism suddenly emerging in the Labour Party and Sanders. So there was this uh, very significant shift where uh, the movement confronted the fact that it had to address the state. It couldn't ignore the state and it had to address political power. The problem is that knowing that you have to get engaged in politics still, still leaves the question open of, well, what kind of politics? And that question, I think, is coming up in all these examples. Do you want me to say something maybe about each of them? Or I don't know how your time is, how, whether you want to just ask questions or do you want me to ramble a little bit about the uh, Syriza Corbin Sanders 
moments. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Just to clarify for for you and of course for the audience, I'm going to be having each of those co-authors on the show over the next uh, month or so as their schedules allow. I'm going to have uh, Leo on the show to not just talk about the book, but also his reissued book with Colin Lees about the uh, British Labour Party and the socialist uh, the socialist attempts over there. And of course, going to be bringing back Steve Marr on the show to talk about some of the economic uh, and financial aspects of the crisis. So I'm going to have all three of you kind of riff on the book, um, for sure. But, but you're the, you're the, uh, you're the, you're the opening act here. Okay. So, okay. so uh, let me give, just give say, us the gloss on it. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, in the, in the case of Syriza, there was a, a number of things that were critical. I mean, there's always the question of, was it realistic to think that a small country integrated into Europe without much of a manufacturing base was going to play any kind of a leading role in the struggle for socialism? You know, that was a fundamental case, uh, question. But part of that was that the issue in Greece wasn't really socialism. What people wanted was to get out of neoliberalism, and they wanted to find a way of doing it without leaving Europe. Uh, that wasn't just, you know, a popular sense, but that was uh, very, uh, you know, it was, the sentiment in the in Syriza itself was very strong in that. So that's another element of it that uh, makes it very hard. Could you really get out of neoliberalism by staying in Europe? And not going, not becoming as radical as it seemed in terms of challenging capitalism. A second uh, element of this is these kinds of struggles have to take place within nations. They can't just suddenly happen internationally. But at the same time, what was crucial was that there was something going on in other countries so that the Germans and the other European leaders uh, didn't have a free hand in terms of what they could do to Syriza. There had to be movements in these other countries putting pressure on their own governments, so that that would lead to creating some space to do things in Greece. And that didn't happen. And a third thing that's crucial is that the difficulty of coming into state power and having to govern, but also at the same time having to build a movement from below. And I I think one of the attitudes that Leo and I had when we were writing about uh, Greece at the time was we were trying to be non judgmental. We were trying to respect how difficult this was and assess it honestly and soberly, but learn from it. So in the case of Syriza, the hard left in Syriza was very critical of the government. Uh, in fact, it eventually left the government. But we, we find, found out when we were in Greece, talking to the social movements, was the hard left wasn't very embedded in the social movements. So that's another problem, this difficulty of having to govern in a difficult situation and that same party having to have a base in the movements and encourage them to be making demands on the state and trying to transform the state uh, itself. So, so, so you know, the Greece thing was so difficult and it, it framed those issues. In the case of Corbyn and England, one of the issues that came up was, again, you know, there was a surprise in terms of momentum and Corbyn coming into the leadership uh, position in the Labour Party. He didn't expect it to happen. But it raised the question of, can you make a radical transformation in a party where the MPs are generally not with you? They're not necessarily socialist. It's difficult enough if you have a party that's committed to socialism. So the question that comes up in England uh, is, how do you transform the Labour Party while you're also engaging in struggles and electoral politics? Because if you can't transform the Labour Party, and this is what Leo and Colin's book is very much about, you end up with a party that actually becomes part of the state and is integrated into the state rather than the party transforming the state. And this raised questions of uh, fundamental democracy. Who actually is making decisions here? Is it the parliamentary wing that runs things and everybody has to fall in line? Or is the ultimate responsibility with the party, which means the base, and the base itself controls the parliamentary wing. So that raises the question of electoralism. With electoralism, you know, it's not surprising under capitalism, whoever is pushing the electoral line and were to get into government, that gives them an enormous amount of leverage over the party as a whole. So this question of party democracy is so fundamental. In the case of Sanders, I think there are a different set of questions that emerged. One was, and I, I want to come back to this, that a lot of people like myself and like Leo would always have argued that why are you wasting your time in the Democratic Party? I mean, this can't be the agents for transformation. 
And yet Sanders emerges and excites people, shows you can raise funds, shows that you can have thousands of supporters in every community, and actually affects the discourse. And I think that's to be really respected. I think it's really important to say that Sanders, the movement around Sanders didn't only accomplish those things, it actually created a lot more space for socialists like myself uh, and socialists like myself in, in the United States. And we have to appreciate that. On the other hand, I think that we've been right about pointing to the limits of this. And so what you get with Sanders is that a movement that is so dependent on a primary working within the Democratic Party, getting the media because you're doing that, and linked, obviously, to Sanders. When Sanders is gone, what happens? And there's the danger of drift. And so one of the things I tried to deal with at the end of my paper, and I think we really have to struggle with, is how do you avoid that drift? We can tell each other courageously that we have to move on. It's a long-term battle. But that's not concrete enough. There has to be something much more concrete so we maintain the institutional links and some, you know, and the, and the networks. Uh, and that's a fundamental qu uh, question. Before getting to that or getting to your questions, I do want to say, uh, and I'm a bit eclectic on this, the way I think about socialism emerging isn't that there's a group of people who actually have the right line. I think we're so uncertain about what the right line is, even though we have all kinds of very important and strong ideas about it, that I think it is very important that there be other different strands that come together and maybe do things, for example, like supporting Sanders that I wouldn't have supported. And then that has its own dynamic in a positive way. And then the question is, how do we keep arguing through this and working together without necessarily agreeing as part of uh, building and uh, rebuilding the socialist uh, movement? So let me stop there and you may want to get into this question of, okay, Sanders and what's next, but I'll leave it to you to yeah. decide where you want to take this. Well, that was a really great opening salvo to uh, what's going to be a, an ongoing discussion, uh, discussion not only of this book, The Socialist Challenge Today, and of course, uh, Leo and Colin's book updating the uh, question of parliamentary soci socialism in the wake of the uh, Corbinite movement. But, you know, these are, these are the questions on the table. These are the challenges of, uh, of, of a generation and uh, multiple generations as they have been. And I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that these questions are on the table at all. Because when I first encountered uh, your thought, your thinking, your work uh, with Leo, I would say that uh, this stuff was somewhat marginal on the left in terms of, uh, in terms of its impact on, on the people who consider themselves to be like sort of leftist, particularly Marxist cadres. Uh, we're a little bit caught up in sectarian arguments in you know, uh, Marxology, various, uh, idealistically oriented arguments about the nature of capitalism versus socialism, perhaps versus feudalism. And while all these things could be interesting sort of academic questions, they certainly don't address the real demands, the real question of taking power and uh, uh, democratically wielding that power, given all the contradictory institutions and uh, formations we find ourselves trapped in, uh, historically speaking. And so if, if anything, if nothing else, and there is much else to hang our hats on, if nothing else, the this series of Sanders-Corbyn wave has brought front and center these questions in a, in a really, really vital way. The concern is that we, we appear no closer to having answers <laughs> uh, than we were, you know, many, many years ago. But at the same time, uh, asking the right question is a vital is a vital first step. So I just want to commend you for that. You know, just I, to, I, I, I like what you said about it, because, you know, th there were times when we thought we had the answers and we didn't. And that became a problem because yeah. we kept operating on the assumption that we had answers. And one of the things that makes it very difficult for, I think, your generation is suddenly we had to admit to ourselves that we didn't have answers. You know, the, you know, the Communist Manifesto gets written in you know 1848, and people think that you know, aha, here's an answer, and then they look to the trade union movement develops, and yeah, we'll build unions, and then you get social democracy, and then you get communism, and you know, we keep kind of going through phases of thinking that we've now got the answer, and the truth is, we're still still struggling. For an answer and getting rid of illusions uh, shouldn't depress us. It should mean that now we can really get on with, as you said, you know, the questions that we have to really address. And, and the other part of what you said, which is so important, is there's different layers 
of doing this. There's a layer of, you know, having to think through difficult questions about, well, what are we really up against? Or, uh, which is one set of questions. But there's also the questions of thinking through the working class and thinking about how we think about the working class and having be, to be grounded in a way that we can't just romanticize the working class, but ask questions about, well, where's the working class been through this? Neoliberalism has been delegitimated in all kinds of ways, but it doesn't matter. You know, in the 60s, we tried to convince people that capitalism wasn't so good. Even if you're getting the material goods, you know, you're being bossed around in the workplace, you're alienated, uh, you know, the question of democracy, the question of the role, you know, the imperial role of uh, the states and uh, Canada's complicity in it. So, you know, there were certain things that are going on at that time. Uh, today, we really have to come to grips with how come you, you don't have to convince people anymore that capitalism sucks. That's one of the differences in my lifetime. People know it, but they don't believe it can be changed. And part of that is they haven't seen that there are structures that they can work through that seem to matter. And that's been a failure of social democratic parties. It's a failure of the sectarian left, but it's also been a failure of unions. And, you know, what you, what you see is, you know, I, I, th I think about, you know, the Labour Party that uh, people were involved in in the mid-90s, people like Adolf Reed. They actually were making inroads into local unions. But what happened when election time came is that people voted pragmatically. They said, well, we have to keep the Republicans out or we have to get the Democrats in. So whatever they were learning about, we don't like the system and we want to modify things, it came down to making a pragmatic decision about the election. And that diverted resources and energy uh, into the electoral. And we, we had the same thing here. I mean, part of what was going on with Sanders was the notion of, well, he's not really electable. So there is something about the importance of building a powerful base within the working class that includes socialists so that they can make the argument about the struggle really being long term. And elections are a very important moment in it, but we have to see it as a moment in it. And if I could say the same thing was so true in England, where when Brexit interrupted Corbyn, when he was really had a lot of momentum, when his programs were so popular, and he did well in the in 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 uh, the earlier election. Brexit interrupted all of that, and the reason we couldn't respond to it was because in working class communities, which used to be laborite, which used to argue about how far you should go in terms of socialism, but took at least social democracy for granted, uh, that had all been lost by deindustrialization, the weakness of the left, the social democrats completely selling out and becoming part of the problem. When that happened, it was as if workers were left on their own in these communities. And they were frustrated. The openings were there to move them, but we weren't embedded in there. So they picked up, you know, the frustrations were picked up by the right. There was nobody there to con counter that. And that's part of what, you know, the Corbyn loss eventually was about. So it's so important to get to the organizational questions. It isn't just about talking about you know, raising what are the radical policies we need. Yes, that's crucial, important. But it's, the crucial question is, how do we organize ourselves and the working class so it really becomes a social force? How do we make the kind of working class that can actually have hopes of changing power? And, and you know, that, that ends up to be the question. Right. Yeah, that's spot on. I mentioned off air before we got started today that, you know, what, what's kind of bummed me out so much about uh, our, our political conjuncture in, in the face of uh, the coronavirus and the crisis this time that you write about in, in your bullet piece is that uh, like so many other crises that the left has faced, particularly in the last decade, uh, it's been a disarticulating force. Rather than uh, having a socialist left that is uh, that is bolstered by this moment, that coheres uh, in the face of this challenge, in order to, in order to to face face it down, you know, pro appropriately and properly and collectively. Instead of that, mm -hmm. uh, it's re we've really seen it uh, disarticulate the left. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in every sense of, of the, of the word, it, people can't even come to, I mean, I've, I get involved in these, these little spats and they're friendly spats, people, pe- pe- you know, friends and comrades and sort of debating uh, about different scientific interpretations and the latest studies that have come out and whether or not they have any validity about the uh, herd immunity and, and if, whether or not, you know, people are panicking or being, uh, governments are being histrionic in their responses to this thing, uh, uh, who, to whom, to who th- does that, do those, does the benefits of these policies accrue? You know, and so the left really, we can't even sort of uh, cohere, congeal around very basic fundamental questions about the nature of this crisis and what to do about it. Uh, as as which would be a precondition for us to coming to get for us to come together and 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 plant our flag and and chart another course an alternative course forward uh, from the, the the types of people who uh, are on the one hand either willing to kind of just burn it down and in, in their uh, you know chase for for herd immunity or what have you uh, to hell with the health of the workers. Now we've seen CEO after CEO take to Twitter right or take a call up their their journalist hack friends at the Economist or Newsweek. And and cry wolf that their industry is is about to collapse. We saw the CEO of Tyson Foods, you know, uh, make a couple of tweets and scare up some journalists and 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 scare the pe- American people sufficiently such that they believe that our food supply is about to collapse. When in reality, we're dumping potatoes in fields in Idaho because restaurants aren't ordering them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and and yet, so what? What does Trump do? Trump today, in response to this media panic, spawned by the ruling class forces these workers back to work at some of these Tyson plants to hell with their health. The profits of the oligarchs must be protected. And we don't have an alternative that has really cohered from the left because of the way that this has been disarticulating. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that shows up, especially in this moment, but it's, you know, it's been a regular aspect of trying to build a left. So mm. on the one hand, you have a left that is always looking for the definitive crisis. Globalization is going to collapse. Capitalism is going to collapse. The American empire is over. The trouble with that is, first of all, if it were true, it doesn't necessarily make the working class stronger. It makes a good number of people would say, shit, it used to be great under Bush or under Clinton. Let's just get back to those days. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make, you know, lead to anything. It's, it, it's, it's a misconception about how people get politicized. So that, that's one problem with it. Uh, the other problem with it is that it isn't true that capitalism has a certain amount of resilience. Uh, the American state is still strong. Capital is still able to, you know, in the last while, it's been able to integrate the whole world. It's been able to integrate the former communist countries. It's been able to integrate China into a global capitalism. Uh, you know, compared to what capitalism was leaving you know, move, getting out of the Second World War, it actually became stronger in terms of uh, uh, the making of global capitalism. So, so we, we have to have some respect for capitalism. We have to really understand that uh, ending capitalism is unlikely to happen because of capitalism running into some barriers. As long as capitalism can solve its problems at our expense, it's quite likely that it's going to keep going. The question is, when do we become a barrier? you know, to keep capitalism from going. And related to that is that everyday life, people are dependent on, on capital. It isn't just ideologically that they love capitalism or anything. It's that they're dependent on it. This is what they see every day. I go to work. And of course, yeah, capital organizes work. Capital uh, invests. Uh, I'm dependent on them. And it's just a reality of everyday life. If the financial system crashes, I'm going to be screwed. So I do want them to bail out finance. So we always have to cope with those things too. I think in this moment, and I think this quite strongly, is that we can step back and say, well, what have we really learned? I mean, this is a really unique crisis. This isn't a crisis that happened because of, you know, a crisis in profits. It happened because there actually was a health crisis. And in order to solve the health crisis, you do things like insist on social distancing. And the whole point about work is it depends on people getting together to do things. So it, it freezes the economy. And the strategy of the right is you take advantage of it where you can, but you're mostly trying to make sure that the basic economic infrastructure will be there when you come out of this. Now, I think what it allows us to do is to raise all kinds of questions about, you know, at a couple of levels. One question is, 
how come you're so unprepared for this? And when you think about it, you begin to get into the question of the healthcare cuts and the lack of a healthcare system in the States. I mean, this has an awful lot to do with why we're unprepared and couldn't actually cope with it. So that's very important uh, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of a lesson that we really need, you know, it was the workers who understood this. It was healthcare workers who were arguing that cutbacks in staffing and cutbacks in med, in uh, beds and cutbacks in uh, equipment is going to come back to haunt us in terms of lives uh, and in terms of health. They didn't know that the pandemic was coming, but you just need that kind of flexibility instead of thinking you're going to run them like a private business and have everything operating at full capacity. And when something happens, there's nothing to do except try to make others bear the burden of that. So there is this whole question of essential needs that is coming to the fore. People are thinking about essential needs. And I think we have to make sure we don't just think about this defensively. If we're going to talk about essential needs and health care, let's broaden it. Let's really talk about what essential needs are. Let's take on the pharmaceutical companies. Of course, they weren't prepared. They're not interested in inventing a vaccine for something they don't know whether it's going to come up. But as a society, we are. So why do we leave, you know, the, the question of pharmaceuticals to these companies? Why isn't that part of, as it is in every other country? It isn't in Canada, by the way. But I think most countries that have a healthcare system also have public ownership in the pharmaceutical industry. We should, we should be talking about that. Uh, and right. extending it that way, as well as everything else that's an essential need. Let's have a discussion on essential needs. That's what's going on right now, housing, et cetera. And then about democratizing these essential needs. It isn't just saying we're going to have national health care if the hospitals are run by uh, administrators who are thinking about them, you know, that how, how do they make profits out of a universal health care system? We've got to think about democracy. And again, you know, it's workers who are getting this. It's workers who understand what's happening on the front lines. And uh, we should not only be defending workers, we should be actually speaking of moving towards some kind of working class hegemony where workers are themselves confident that they understand these things better than management. And management is who screws this up. So I think there's an enormous potential there. Then there's the question of the environment. You want to talk about a health pandemic that we didn't expect and we were unprepared for? Well, what about the environment? I mean, this one you can't fix with a vaccine. You're not going to fix with social distancing. What are we doing about it? And I think it gives us an enormous chance to talk about preparing for the environment. And you're not going to prepare for it if you leave everything to these fragmented corporations pursuing profits. And I think it's a sensible argument. You know, that, that that's educating people about what's going on. Uh, the question of not being prepared in terms of equipment. Well, big surprise that they weren't prepared in terms of this kind of equipment. Uh, you know, that's not what they factor into their risk calculations with we might have a pandemic. You know, they figure that, yeah, if anything happens, we can get subsidized and we'll, we'll move over to it. But it gives us a chance to talk about conversion. Uh, why should we let the corporations decide what should be done? There's important things and they're important in the middle of this, you know, this pandemic, but we should say they're always important. We should start learning about this and, you know, talking about what kind of a life uh, we want, you know, the bailouts of the banks. I think that when we're out of this crisis and the banks start threatening to move someplace else or not investing, we should say, shit, we saw all of that happen with financial crisis. We're not going to go through that again. This time we're going to have controls on those banks. We bailed them out and we have some rights. We're going to force them to invest in a green strategy. There should be a rake up of, off of every financial institution in this country that says that it's going to go into uh, the environment, a certain portion of it. It might go through, you know, a green bank or an infrastructural bank until we're strong enough to actually think about nationalizing them. But, you know, it's the kind of things that you can talk about in a grounded way. People get it. Right. We don't and, have to cite chapter and verse uh, capital from Capital Volume 1 or right. you, you even can, the Communist Manifesto. People have right. lived experience of this in their real lives. And I think... I think, I think, I think Pardon the interruption, everybody, but Sam Gannon is dropping some serious knowledge bombs today about the importance of building left institutions that can withstand the day-to-day -day crises and pressures of global capitalism, and DPS fits that mold quite explicitly, if I do say so myself. I hope it's not too self-serving to suggest that. DPS and other shows like it play an important role 
in not only educating people who are coming to the left, but deepening their ability to question their surroundings, to operate, to act effectively. We absolutely have to develop the capacities of the working class if we are going to continue to build this democratic socialist future that we all hope for, that we all desperately need. So if you have some expendable income and you would like to partake in that enterprise, and I presume you do because you're listening today, uh, head over to www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. Not only will you get the personal satisfaction of knowing that you are furthering this new left media ecosystem that will be so vital to capturing and cohering a working class movement for the future, but you will also get access to our B-sides that come out on a fairly weekly basis. Those feature in-depth hot takes with guests and uh, myself. We go deep. We save some of the hottest hot takes, some of the most critical insights for our patrons because we know that they are well-suited to handle it. It's that higher-level shit, people. We save it for the patrons. Additionally, I provide my patrons with a segment called In Case You Missed It or I-C-Y-M-I for short. This is a series wherein I mine the internet across space and time for some of the most important audio content, be that interviews that I myself was not fortunate enough to do, be that lectures on YouTube from luminaries such as Vivek Chibber or Adolf Reed Jr. and others, or any other audio content at all. Uh, but I try to curate that for my patrons because we can't all be extremely online all the time and a number of things come up that you will inevitably miss. So you'll get a custom curated podcast feed full of content uh, from all over. In addition to those B sides, I think you're going to get a lot of good stuff there for your contribution to this project. Head over to patreoncom slash dead pundits and subscribe today. I think, I think there's an importance in people thinking theoretically through these questions because it gives them some clarity. But, you know, the great opportunity now is translating all of this stuff. And we should also think of it in that way. I, uh, you know, I think Brett said something like, uh, we don't want to write about these things in Latin for the few. We want to write them about them in, you know, in a language that the masses understand. But, you know, there's, you know, you, we obviously should respect thinking these things through so we can contribute and show that socialist thinking contributes to thinking about this concretely. But that's the job. And that's the amazing opportunity right now to do this. So I, I, I think there are, I think there's, you know, three or four things that have to be done, especially in the U.S., but, but everywhere. One is we have to defend frontline workers. This question of defending them around health and safety is so important because we're telling everybody that they're essential workers, they've been undervalued, and people understand it. People really respect that they're out there doing what we should be doing. And, you know, that extends to the couriers and everybody else, the bus drivers, everybody who's who's out there doing. Those are the people we need, not the hedge fund managers. So defending them is really an opening. And unions have to be, you know, have to take this on aggressively. They don't have to be afraid of, well, the public's going to say we're harming health. No, we have to say that we're trying to protect the frontline workers, because they're the only ones who can actually help the sick. And they've been completely flexible and responsible. There's no need to take away their rights. We have to strengthen them and everything so they can be monitors of this. They can be the whistleblowers. So there's, and that's also a way that we can start linking up with workers, which is the most important thing, I think, for, you know, organizations like the DSA. They have, they haven't penetrated the working class. And that's one way that they can show support. The the other way I think that's crucial is we need campaigns. And, you know, that's kind of a standby on the left. We always have campaigns. But the reason we especially need them is that we don't have our own organization. And so that we're institutionally adrift, as you said at the beginning of this. And the strength of campaigns is that we can choose just a couple of them, not the whole, you know, we can have a wonderful pr- platform, but let's choose two or three things. United States, you're obviously going to choose Healthcare, you're going to choose the environment, and maybe you choose labor reform. Let's just have a national emphasis on those programs and start organizing everybody around that and build organizations around it. Build them locally, build them nationally, uh, build the networks, build the, 
you know, build an, the, the support networks like podcasts and Jacobin, uh, build study groups, uh, and, you know, and get into locals and organize around these things. They're very concrete, but they have radical uh, potentials. So I think campaigns are very important. And then the other thing that I think is really important is uh, making socialists. And we can't underestimate that. You know, there's there's a degree to which you can do a certain amount of populist education. But without socialists, the populist education ends up to be electoralist or immediate. Because workers' experience is that, shit, I, you know, I depend on the short term. I don't live in the long term. I have to figure out things in the short term. I depend on my boss. I have to support him even if I don't like him. Uh, uh, you know, unions are particularists. They don't particularly care about, they care, but they don't, you know, they don't actively try to change it in terms of uh, the poorer sections of the working class. So, so you're not building the class. And I think what socialists are for is thinking through the longer term strategic things, how you put these other things on the agenda. But we should, you know, what Jay McAlevey said this after the last Sanders campaign. We should have set up regional social, regional schools. She, I, you know, she was thinking about organizing schools and it was a bit problematic. It was, I thought, a brilliant idea, but it was problematic in the sense that you have to be clear about whether you're making organizers for the Democratic Party or whether you're making socialist organizers. But to make socialists, we should be able to, you know, get uh, you know, in each of these cities that have tens of thousands of Sanders supporters, why can't we get a few hundred people who are interested in what socialism is about and developing socialist skills and learning about it in a, and, and, and people who want to develop into socialists, workers mixing with activists who are socialists and want to develop it where they can actually feed into, uh, socialist thought and learn about, you know, what do we learn from Podemos and Sunisa and Corbyn? And what do we learn ourselves from Sanders? Um, and I think that's critical. We, we should have these regional schools in, you know, 10 or 12 of them and run them for, you know, whatever we can manage in practical terms, whether it's, you know, two-week schools, weekend schools. And I think that's fundamental. And then the final thing that I think is the most important of all, and the most difficult of all, is that we have to become embedded in the working class. You know, the, the real tragedy of looking at what happens today is that workers think that things suck and they're frustrated, and some of them end up going to the right, and some of them, when they go to the Democratic Party, it just end up being betrayed. And we have such a weak base in the working class. You know, even the few unions that end up supporting Sanders they get nervous about will Sanders be elected, and then they start thinking about toning down some things, or uh, uh, you know maybe what we want is social democracy, a few good demands, and if we can win those, that'll be the ultimate achievement. Well, of course you want to win reforms, but you want to build something that can't just be taken away. That's the problem with these you know reforms we've ever won. So we have to build a base so it can push the leaders. So the leaders aren't saying, well, we like this, but the members aren't there. And that's the most difficult. And part of that is uh, getting engaged in working class struggles. But also part of that is, I think, putting struggles on the agenda that maybe the working class isn't putting on the agenda, but can get engaged in. So let me use the example of the environment. I, I think a crucial thing is conversion. And the environmental movement has talked about it in I think very abstract terms. We promise you a just transition. Workers don't believe that. They don't think that you can have a just transition uh, when you don't control production, when there's no planning. So I, I think what we have to do is find places where workers are losing their jobs or think that their jobs are going to disappear and start talking about, well, how would you protect yourself unless you began to think about conversion and then get the workers involved in fighting for that and then out of that comes a notion of, well, we have to get control over production. We have to think about planning. We have to link up with other workers so they support us. We have to learn from wherever this is going on with other workers. Is that happening in England? Shit, I'd like to read about it. Has somebody done that in uh, an auto plant? Show me. And, you know, it's one of the things we've been doing in Oshawa. Uh, at one level, 
before this pandemic, we had limited success. We were arguing that when, you know, you close this giant plant, plant, if GM doesn't want it, uh, why don't we take it over? Why don't we think beyond GM instead of begging GM to come back? Why don't we think beyond the auto industry and say, well, what could it make that's socially useful uh, in terms of equipment, uh, medical equipment for an aging population? And we emphasize electric vehicles. And we, we said electric vehicles, not cars, because we didn't want the government to take something over and then start competing with China and Mexico and the United States. We wanted it to be part of a plan where you said, we need post office vehicles, vans. We need utility vehicles. We need mini school buses. We need ambulances. And start talking about what we need and how the government could buy them as part of a plan rather than think about competition. Because a lot of problems with workers thinking about, and socialists, about democracy, they think of democracy in each plant. And that isn't democracy if you don't change the context, if all you end up with is workers competing with each other. So we began to try to develop this notion of public ownership, thinking about planning, conversion, and we especially linked it into the environment. And, you know, just positive in terms of a lot of people began to see that the environment wasn't a threat, but an opportunity. But I have to say, we weren't very successful in mobilizing a lot of workers. The, the, the committee consisted of uh, workers and community activists, but we couldn't get to workers for two reasons. And we have to respect them. One is that the union wasn't there. And people still, even when they're critical of their union, look to their union, because if the union doesn't even believe in it, it doesn't seem real. And the second thing is workers were so demoralized. They've just been gone through defeats. And the idea of thinking about a big plan, you know, their response was, oh, that sounds great, but uh, that's pie in the sky. And we couldn't overcome that because we were too small. And so what we did was, you know, we, we, we're trying to organize. And with the pandemic, we shifted our emphasis into converting uh, facilities into making what healthcare workers need and making equipment that's needed. And now we've been trying to extend this to talk in other communities, including the oil sector, about people having to think about this. Oil is going to fall off a cliff at a, you know, a certain moment in time. What are you going to do? And you know, to the extent that we can extend it, it makes it sound real. It's happening in different places. And what actually happened in Oshawa, uh, not just because of us, but we were instrumental because we've been mobilizing around it for the last three weeks and getting some politicians on board is uh, GM finally agreed that they would start making some medical equipment in it. Right. That was and a big was, victory. Let me, let me just contextualize this for the audience yeah. really quickly if they haven't been paying attention. Uh, and if you haven't, shame on you. And no, I'm kidding. This is a this is a really important case study here where there's a GM plan in Oshawa. It was announced, what, a, it's almost been a year and a half, two years now, that they were going to be uh, shutting down much of the capacity. They're laying off a lot of workers. This was a wave of, of auto plant closures in the U.S. that was sort of meant as a blackmail, a bribe, if you will, maybe fishing for a bailout. Who knows? That's the big uh, – these CEOs, Sam, just jingling their aluminum cups in the direction – at the political class these days looking for handouts. I mean, these welfare queens, how they, how, how do they get off? Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was all a big part of, of this, of these, of these layoffs. And there was a heroic, um, uh, organization, self-organization of the working class in, in the greater Oshawa and Toronto area. And you guys mobilized, uh, to try to save the plant, to try to convert it to, uh, producing forms of green technology. And now, uh, tell us about the, the latest victory there at that Oshawa plant. Well, I should say we, we we did a very good pamphlet that included articles and uh, statements and documents from uh, Green Jobs Auto Oshawa. It's called "Take the Plant, Save the Planet," and uh, you can get it uh, you can get it online if you go to the Socialist Project. Uh, no, what's happened uh, lately is that uh, we quickly switched switched over to dealing with the pandemic. Uh, we started getting some support and uh, significant uh, media attention. Uh, GM has just agreed that they're going to start making uh, masks, a million uh, uh, masks a month. Uh, there's limits to it, and we're now pressing on the limits. You know, why aren't you using more of the plant? Why can't you do more? Why aren't you making the most important plants, the uh, masks, the N95s? But again, we're trying to kind of combine both a political challenge uh, that can be educational but is organizing people to do things. We're talking right now about doing a cavalcade of cars that will go around to various hospitals and long-term homes 
to show our solidarity with the frontline workers and then kind of end up at the plant and then have an online uh, press conference that includes frontline workers and laid off auto workers talking about this and talking about thinking ahead that this is a great step. We really are, you know, thrilled that we got this step because it shows that, you know, you can fight for social production rather than just production that's profitable. But it also shows, well, why aren't we getting ready for the environment? Uh, that's kind of been pushed off the agenda with the pandemic, but it's there. It's going to be there. Why don't we start talking about that? Why don't we talk about a national convergence, national conversion agency, which looks at all of these things? Why don't we talk about regional research and tech centers that hire, th- you know, hundreds of young engineers that think about what we could make? Why don't we, you know, we just had a, actually yesterday at a meeting, we got good support for it. Well, we have to push for it. We had a meeting with labor councils. And one of our members raised the question of uh, every labor council should start setting up a conversion committee in their community that starts talking about what could be converted in their community or, or what does their community need that no one's thinking about. Why don't we set up committees like this in our locals? Why don't we set this up in the healthcare, in the uh, public sector? Because we know when this is over, the big line we're going to get is, well, we need austerity to pay for everything we were handing out. Exactly. And there's going to be an attack. We, this is when we got to get ready for saying, we don't accept that. We don't accept your logic. Essential services are what people need and we want them expanded. Never mind not cut. We suffered because we didn't expand them before. And, you know, we have, you know, so there's all kinds of things we can put on the agenda and get people fighting over that carry, you know, an alternative message. It's, it's, you know, it has a dynamic to it that is exciting. I've been watching people on this committee. Uh, develop. I mean, the people who joined this committee were always kind of, you know, uh, committed, I'd say committed and stubborn people. And what I've seen them, uh, you know, they're the spokespersons. It isn't people from the Socialist Project that speak to press, you know, to conferences or to do the interviews. And it's wonderful to see them making the arguments with such confidence and influencing other workers. So, you know, this is still very small stuff, but we've got so, you know, far to go. But it's it's getting a feeling that we're getting someplace because we're actually making these links and getting embedded and getting unions, which I have to emphasize, you know, when we talk about labor reform and getting union density, uh, that's absolutely important. But unions have to be radically transformed. And, you know, and and transforming unions so they become class struggle organizations. So they're not just kind of defensively representing their members. But, you know, why don't we have, you know, another dimension of, you know, when I talk about the essential services and, uh, you know, the the emphasis that uh, uh, people like Leo and Greg Albo have always put on transforming the state. Unions have kind of learned over time. I think I don't know what it's like really in the U.S., but I'd say in Canada over the last five or six years, We've been pretty successful in telling unions that you can, public sector unions, you cannot win in the public sector if you don't have the public behind you. You cannot pretend you're a militant industrial union from the 60s. And they've all begun to, to recognize that and start talking about uh, the importance of getting the public on side. Well, then we've been kind of trying to get them to say it's not good enough to, you know, to put up posters and issue press releases. You've got to prove it. You've got to put these issues on the bargaining table so people know you're really fighting for the public. And that's starting to happen. But there's a next step that I think it needs. We have to start thinking about transforming the state so that workers who are in the state or the parastate start talking about councils of workers and the community. Healthcare workers talking to people in the community who are interested in uh, long-term care facilities, uh, the care of their old, you know, their elders and community in their, uh, I'm sorry, healthcare in their communities. Start talking about healthcare, uh, about councils of healthcare workers and community members, uh, education workers and parents, and start thinking about how do they work together to think about a different kind of state with different resources and institutions that change how workers relate. So it isn't just about collective bargaining. Because if you don't do that, if you ever got the power, what happens is that workers now feel like, shit, we got a, we got a sympathetic government in power. Let's just ask for higher wages. And that's not the right. point. 
the point is, of course, you want to be paid decently, but you also want equality across sectors. And, and, and you want to think about the social issues. You want to think about how do we use this now to really build something rather than screw it up. That's right. So much to think about there. You were, of course, one of the, the, the early voices that exposed me to this argument about the danger of trade unions as sectoral uh, institutions and, and the need to broaden that with a party like apparatus or at least uh, some, some types of organizational institutional linkages and that kind of thing is needed now more than ever. And to, to come back to your article, I think one thing that I took away from this and people should read this, I always encourage people don't take our words for it. Uh, read this piece, share it with your friends. I think that you will all uh, gain some, uh, some, I, I don't want to say, um, you know, comfort because there isn't very little comfort to be found in the hellscape that we're trapped in right now. Uh, some of us more so than others. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just share a little personal anecdote. Fortunately, I'm not uh, certainly not starving or on the bread lines, but it's been six or seven weeks now that I'm waiting on uh, unemployment. And, you know, I mean, six or seven weeks for some people, it's enough. People are rationing medication and food. And uh, it's 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 a it's a really trying and difficult time for people. Um, but, you know, this this piece gave me some solace in terms of thinking more contextually about what we're up against. Uh, it's easy to see this crisis and the way that the left is being disarticulated in, in, in the crisis with the, the, the exit of Bernie Sanders and uh, the way that the left appears to be aimless, even though some of us are still fighting as hard as ever. Um, but you reveal that, you know, Occupy didn't kick off until a couple of years after the crisis, right? Uh each and every time a crisis hits, it has a way of disempowering the working class because we are tied to the fate of capital and in and, and very concrete materialist ways that you talked about early in our chat. Uh, but the resistance cannot be measured in terms of what crops up in, in the thick of the crisis, in the thick of the moment. And I think the way that you contextualize the way that struggle emerges afterwards and the lessons are learned painfully, sometimes slowly, but they are lasting lessons and they are lasting examples. It should give us, it should give us some hope. <laughs> and can I, can it, I say time. about what you just said? Yeah, please. You know, just in terms of your personal situation, I'm really struck by, you know, the left always talks about inequality. Uh, but in this crisis, we are really seeing what that means. You know, how difficult it is for some people just to survive or risk their lives. And I think a lot of workers are starting to appreciate that more. We can't build a working class unless the inequality within the working class is also problematized. It isn't just our, you know, the class inequality be be between the executive and us. It's the inequalities within the working class. We have to have a commitment within the working class to fight for that. And, you know, what you said about yourself is important. The other thing that I think is so important is it's very hard to talk to workers about the long term because of their personal struggle with the short term. And I think one of the messages we have to get across to ourselves and to workers is that when you don't think about the long term, what happens is you're always stuck with these limited choices. This is all I can do. It's only when, you know, it's, you know, or, or, you know, I'm losing I'm losing, I have to make a concession because then at least I keep my job, something. It's always a lousy choice. And the point about thinking about the long term is that it's the only way to start changing the options we have. And the other point about it is that it might mean sacrifices. That if you really want to change things, it's uncertain, it's risky, the other side's going to respond. But at least you're investing in a future of some kind. If otherwise, what you end up with is making concessions just so they can pocket it. And I think that's really critical. Right. That's right. Uh, let's see where to go now. So much to talk about. There were a number of things that I wanted to, to kind of circle back to in the course of, of doing this. I think one of the things that uh, is, is now on the table front and center, uh, and it's funny because these are the, again, you know, I have to, another personal reflection. This is, uh, I came to uh, Gendon Panich thought. Uh, <laughs> about a little over a decade ago, 
which is pretty late to the game, but in the in the grand scheme of things, many of my audience uh, is just now coming around to to Gendon Panic's thought. Uh, th- this kind of understanding of like you know looking at uh, the materiality of institutions and the contradictions presented in in the course of of vying for actual power, right? Uh, uh, you know, I, I came about it. Not only did I learn about the sectoralism, uh, the, the the struggle against sectoralism in the unions. Not only did I learn about, you know, the importance of actually contesting for state power, regardless of, you know, the the challenges and the contradictions therein. Uh, but I also learned about the importance of of a party, a party-like democratic structure to, to in order to train, not only to carry forth that sort of institutional memory that you just talked about and that you write about, but also to to coordinate and 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 bring people outside of their narrow scope of reality. And, and that's something that, you know, that's a role that many of us kind of had hoped in, in the United States that DSA would play. That's something that a role that uh, people say in uh, Britain hope that some uh, a group like Momentum would play. And uh, there are a lot of sparks and shoots and a lot of promising developments, no doubt. I do not mean to, uh, to, to ignore those or uh, in any way. Um, all valiant and heroic efforts, important stuff that's come out of this. And yet – we haven't had any any kind of institutional formation come along like that yet. Um, why why do you think that is? I mean, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise. We just mentioned that capitalism is a material phenomenon in which people's uh, imaginations and life chances and all the rest of it are tied to uh, accumulation. Uh, but you know, riff on that for us. This is certainly something you've that, that's probably been haunting you uh, for many years. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, let me just say something that's a little bit of a sideline, but it gets to it. Um, a lot of people long for the 60s of your generation and, and younger. Sounds like, wow, workers were militant and things were great. One of the things that happened in the 60s was the workers' militancy uh, led capital to react, capital in the state to react. And workers... Uh, had depended on their militancy. This is how they made gains in the post-war period. And they hadn't developed the political capacity uh, to fight back, like to think in terms of, well, we have to control investment. Uh, And one of the lessons of that was that the 60s were great in terms of militancy, but militancy is one step. And because we hadn't solved the political problem, we've been suffering since. So the 60s weren't that wonderful. And this has been a long time coming. Now, I think the reason is, the reason, I think that, you know, part of this is that uh, the working class isn't inherently revolutionary. It isn't inherently anything. It's not essentialist. It has potentials uh, to be radical. It has potentials to be conservative. It has to be made. And what we've been living through is capitalism making a particular kind of working class that fits into capitalism. So even with neoliberalism, what you see is workers uh, responding to neoliberalism by trying to survive. People always try to survive. And if you respond by saying, well, I guess I'll just work overtime. Or, you know, what happened in the 80s and 90s, I guess my, you know, spouse or uh, will have to work full-time instead of part-time. And my kid, instead of going to university and studying, is going to have to work while he's studying. Uh, or I'm going to get a tax break. That'll be the equivalent of a wage increase. Uh, I'll go into debt. So ironically, in all those kinds of responses, individual responses, we actually were contributing to reproducing neoliberalism. How do you survive as an individual? How do you adjust to the system? Uh, so what we have to really recognize is that the working class can be made into a social force, but it has to be made into a social force. That's the main project of a socialist party. It isn't to come up with more radical policies. Coming up with more radical policies is part of building the working class. But the most, you know, what distinguishes social democratic parties from socialist parties is that socialist parties are always thinking about How do we develop the capacities within the working class to analyze, strategize, organize, work together? That's what we have to struggle with. 
Uh, and it isn't a question of we need a party so we can make a revolution tomorrow. We can't do that. You know, capitalist institutions are very strong. To start talking about what we need is, you know, to form a revolutionary vanguard that's going to smash the state. It's just an invitation to the state to smash you before you do anything. We have to figure out how within, you know, this was really what Gramsci was coping with because uh, he saw that after the Russian Revolution, these re revolutions in the West weren't happening. They didn't happen in Germany and they weren't going to happen anywhere because capitalist institutions were so deeply embedded. And also, we have, you know, liberal, uh, liberal rights are really important. We need them. We don't want to say we don't give a shit about liberal rights and then again, justify them taking them away from us. We need that because it gives us space to do what we need to do. So I, I think what we have to recognize is it's not just that we need a party, but we need a particular kind of party that is committed to building that kind of social base and social force within the working class very broadly you know, defined. And then having a, a, you know, a confident working class, we also want to win over experts who uh, you know, are alienated and doing their work and seeing what actually happens with them, uh, who would love to be working with you know, doing engineering that actually helps people, uh, et cetera. Right. So, so you know, all I can say is this is our challenge. We just have to recognize what the challenge is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's forever that we haven't had this. This isn't just that, you know, we didn't get this with Bernie or Sanders. We should see it as the development in England with Corbyn and Sanders were really steps forward. There might have been confusions there with some people thinking, hey, this is a shortcut. This is great. I'll just do this and we'll win. But it did bring a lot of people into politics. It changed the discourse. It legitimated all kinds of thinking. It exposed capitalism at its best. It developed skills in knocking on door to door and talking to people. Uh, it developed, you know, technical administrative skills. But the challenge really goes way beyond that. We have to figure out how we link up in a concrete way with the working class, do popular education, make socialists out of a lot of workers, and then we're going to be confronted with all the strategic questions. Okay, now, how do we actually come to power electorally? And then once we're in power, which you know we haven't had to deal with, people kind of thought that, well, if Sanders wins, that's really uh, more than half the game. No, you know, had Sanders won, wow, would we have faced difficulties because we didn't have that base. We would have had workers who saw capital leaving because they think, thought that America was getting too radical, saying, we're going too fast. We have to get that investment back. And so, you know, we really have to think through as we get into the state, how do we do enough things for workers so that they think that they see that some change is possible? Then how do we blame capital when they are screwing things up and convince people that we actually have to go further rather than retreat? And how do we do this over time? And how do we not get trapped into, as happened with Corbyn around the Brexit debate, he ended up spending all his time in Parliament, uh, you know, as Leo and Colin uh, write about. And, you know, rather than being out in the streets, it was Tony Benn's great insight that he spent all of his time outside of Parliament. And so it's all those kinds of things that, you know, we just have to get a sense that we're at the beginning of something incredibly exciting with potential and there really is nothing better to do with our lives than commit to this. And uh, we had all kinds of examples of the potentials. And we just have to go and do it and get it into our heads. It's going to take time and it's going to be difficult. That's right. I always find our chat so clarifying, Sam. Um, you know, as the as the, the, the talking heads sang in the 1980s, uh, same as it ever was <laughs> in some senses, right? Of course, we're on a different footing uh, a much a better footing. I don't mean nothing new under the sun in terms of that type of cynicism. I mean, same as it ever was in terms of uh, clarifying our, our purpose and our mission. And I think that's an important message. You really boosted my morale, I got to say, because I've been down in the dumps since Bernie left the race. Things seem uh, dire in, in many ways. Of course, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and things are dire for many, many people. And we need to fight uh, very uh 
ferociously to, to stave off the worst impacts of that, but you've given us a lot of insight. Again, this piece appeared in the, uh, the bullet. People should subscribe to that. It is a socialist project enterprise for free in your inbox. The brilliant writings of the likes of Sam Gindon and others I've had on my show over the years. Uh, that piece is called the coronavirus and the crisis this time. The book is called the socialist challenge today series of Sanders Corbin. It is the second edition with co-authors, Leo Panich and contributor, the great Steve Marr, all past guests of DPS. People should pick this book up. I got myself the audio book of the, the updated version on Haymarket Books. The fine folks of Haymarket have made that available. I don't believe it's available in paperback just yet, but people should order yeah, it anyway. It should, yeah, it should just be out. I just got mine in the mail today. Okay, so we are just freshly out. Hot breaking news here on DPS. Uh, freshly. Can, I, can, I, can I say one thing? Which please you can do. Have, please you do. Want. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever I talk to uh, an American audience – they talk as if Canada's a better place. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, what, what's been going on in Canada over the next last while uh, is we were inspired by, why, what, by what was happening with Sanders. You know, it wasn't that this is it, but, you know, we were watching it and uh, learning from it and seeing a lot of people excited by it, which meant a lot of people who would be open to other politics. And, you know, that was much more optimistic than what was going on in Canada. You know, we look at, you know, all kinds of developments in the States, you know, from Jacobin to uh, labor notes that we ended. And right now there's actually more, more struggles going on in the United States, you know, not just the teachers that was going on before, but now around health and safety, than they've been going on in Canada. So, you know, it's, it's a two-way street here of influence. Right. It is. Uh, we talk about the transatlantic left here on DPS. I've had all of the, many of the participants in that in that formation. No doubt that there is a, a similar kind of exchange between uh, Canada and our partners or the, your partners down here, uh, comrades in the, in the United States. And uh, certainly you guys do tend to to tail us in, in either direction, don't you? You tailed us towards neoliberalism. And hopefully now we can bolster one another in our fight against it. So, uh, again, always clarifying uh, this time. I really do appreciate the boost in morale. I think we could all use it. Uh, people check Great. out uh, those writings. And uh, thanks for joining us. Terrific to talk with. Good luck. <laughs>